Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Today's episode is another in our series of In the C-Suite episodes, and our guest is Jennifer Freed, CEO of the startup Explorer Surgical. A lot of surgical sales and support went virtual and or partially virtual in 2020. Guess what? That is not going to change in 2021 or beyond. Healthcare executives, surgeons, and medical staff are seeing the benefits of virtual platforms, and they like what they're learning. You will see proof of this in just a few minutes. And they, they will be pressuring the med tech industry to continue to provide support even when more access is allowed in the operating room and procedure rooms. This is why I have been looking forward to this interview. Through Explorer Surgical, Jennifer, her co-founder, and her team have put together a terrific platform that puts any medical device company team member and or key opinion leader surgical proctor in any surgical or procedural suite remotely at any time. Everybody wins, as you will learn in this interview. And by everybody, I mean the patient, the hospital, and the medical device company. You will not only enjoy this interview because you will learn about a platform that could benefit many of you and your companies, but it is also a great story about the birth and nurturing of a startup. By the way, I am also the host of the MedTech Leaders community. You can learn more about MedTech Leaders at medtechleaders.net. And this is a place where leaders and those aspiring to be leaders get together to help each other out with best practices, problems, solutions, ideas, and successes. There is a 30-day free trial. Again, you can learn more at medtechleaders.net. Please check the show notes for links like Jennifer Freed's LinkedIn profile and also the Explore Surgical website. Now let's get together with Jennifer Freed and learn how we can work more effectively in the operating room. Jennifer Freed, thank you so much for being on the podcast and videocast today. I think we're going to learn a lot of interesting things about the Explorer Surgical Platform. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. And especially in this pandemic environment, which uh, has ruled us for the last year and will continue to influence us going forward. Uh, but I think there's some interesting things here that I, I want to go over. One thing I want to do is I want to define uh, sort of the challenge that we have. I'm just going to put a couple slides up here really quickly to um, uh, to share with everybody. And so this is what we call the MedTech Access Challenge. And so for most of my listeners and viewers, this, some of this stuff isn't unfamiliar, so I'll go really quick. You know, we can't prospect face-to-face. -face. Tools and training, um, they're coming into play a lot more, but I still think a number of companies lack some of these tools, uh, and you provide an interesting tool. 
then reduced access to hospitals in general, reduced access to operating rooms and procedure rooms to assist in those procedures and those surgeries, and then reduced access to hospital floors for in-services and bedside training. That's the, the access challenge we have that was really amplified by COVID this past year. And let me go down here. So what's the future of access? And you can, you can um, when I get through these, I'm going to ask you what you think I missed. But one thing is what we don't know. We're learning new stuff about this virus every day. And will herd immunity really be herd immunity? You know, still in the United States, there's a large percentage of people that indicate they're uncomfortable with taking a vaccine. And a lot of that's due to disinformation. And herd immunity is based on the willingness of a lot of people to take the vaccine. Or are we always going to be pressured by viruses? And if you don't have good herd immunity, all you do is create a, a place for variants to thrive. And we're going to have variants and more variants. And we don't know how the current vaccines work against these variants. And that all leads up to risk management, which um, not only hospitals and clinics are trying to manage, but also doctors in their offices are trying to manage. And finally, after a whole year of COVID, where a lot of things went virtual and virtual support became uh, something very important, I think people have found there's advantages to virtual support. And in fact, if we go to a, a, a survey, it's a little bit blurry, I'm sorry, but this is actually something that you shared on LinkedIn, Jennifer, uh, which I think is terrific. If you add up these, these top three bars, you're at about 75% of hospital C-suite executives saying that they like virtual interactions with the vendors and they expect them to continue going forward, even post-pandemic. So that's sort of the environment, the framework that we're working from as we start to talk to you today. What I'd like to do now is go to you and Explorer Surgical. Let me unshare this slide and tell us who you are and what your role is at Explorer Surgical and basically what Explorer Surgical does. Yeah, thank you so much for that great introduction. And uh, Fletcher Spate, who published that last survey that you shown, you know, it's just a really great source of data and research on, you know, what hospitals are seeing in terms of trends. I encourage anybody that's listening to check out, you know, Fletcher Spade and some of the great data that they've published. So I'm Jennifer Freed. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Explorer Surgical. Uh, we started our company out of a research lab at the University of Chicago Hospital. And what we are is a digital and remote case support platform for the medical device industry. Is this a good time where you'd like me to, to share my overview slide? Um, not yet, because I want to okay. make a comment about this. But one of the things we agreed to Jennifer is, you know, frequently when I'm talking to a CEO and in, in this in the C-suite series, is I like to sort of go into their background story. But in this case, I wanted to jump right into the technology and talk about that. And I think what uh, listeners ought to know and viewers ought to know is that what is interesting here is the first assumption you have, and it was the first assumption I had when I heard about Explorer Surgical from your uh, VP of Sales, Jim, um, was that this was the the child of the pandemic. 
You know, it was a response to the pandemic. And then when you and I got to talking, we found that that's not true. So we're going to circle back to that because I think that's a really surprising part of the story. But let's right now, let's go ahead and, and jump into the technology and review what it is and what it does. Yeah, so I'll share my screen. Can you see everything okay? It's right, yes, ma'am. That's right there. Perfect. So, you know, what Explorer is is a digital and remote case support platform, as I mentioned. And there's really three key pillars of our product and offering that we provide to the medical device companies. The first is having a digital playbook to show best practices. So we work with med device companies to script out best practices for each procedural step and also for each team member in the room. So it's like a, an interactive digital IFU so that team members can have access to best practices in real time while they're doing the procedure. The second pillar of our platform is interoperative data capture. So we make it really easy for med device companies and their team members, whether it's their clinical specialists, their reps, their physician proctors, whoever is working with them to make sure that the case goes smoothly to capture real-time data very easily from a mobile device. The third pillar of our platform is HIPAA-compliant remote connectivity. So we allow those experts to get into procedure rooms anywhere in the world through HIPAA-compliant audio and video support. So that can be as simple as having mobile devices where we get direct feeds from that device. And then we can also slave out, as you can see here, you know, direct feeds of Fluoro, of Echo, of any other patient monitoring tools as well. Okay. And when we're looking at this, and actually for everybody that's listening, the first pillar is actually quite a big hint as to the story behind the company, um, although all the pillars are critical. Ken, if, if you're in the operating room with this platform, could different people be looking at different elements of the platform? For example, the let's say the the circulating nurses that are supporting the procedure with um, the instrumentation and so on and so forth, could they be seeing something that's more designed for them versus what the surgeon is seeing? Exactly. So, you know, we think about a surgical team as exactly that. It's a full team of people that all have their own steps and best practices that they're following to work together to ensure that the patient has the best outcome. And so what we do when we build out these digital playbooks is that we can have a big board view, as you can see here, where everybody in the room can look at it and see the most pertinent information for each step of the case. But then we customize the content to each team member, knowing that the scrub in the room needs to know a lot of information around instrumentation. But the rep, you know, may have their own set of best practices that they want to follow or information for them to know. So we can have that big board view and then up to four other roles that all display their own uh, content that is specific to them for each step of the procedure. That's pretty amazing. And then the um, can the sales rep or let's say or application specialist or somebody at the company 
on that big board view, can they see all the different uh, roles that are being that are going on at one particular time, or is there a way for them to switch back and forth and see them just so they can, almost like a rep being in the room? Like I remember when I was a surgical rep in the room. You know, one minute the doctor's talking to me, the next minute I'm um, stepping over to the, you know, circulating nurses and exactly. looking over their shoulder. Can you do the same thing? Yeah, so you can switch your role while you're in the case. So you can switch the content that you're seeing or, you know, to see what other people in the room are seeing. And it, it is based off that premise of exactly what you sa- said. So we found that the best reps and clinical specialists, they're not just there working with the physician. They're working with the entire team in the room and helping them understand how do you put this together? How do you set up the table? What are the things that you're looking for? And so that's why we wanted to have something that was role specific. Okay. And now let's say this particular procedure that we're involved in or uh, this operation is part of a surgeon's training. So they need some type of proctoring for so many cases before they're on their own, so to speak. Is, Is it possible now for a supervising surgeon or a key opinion leader to be looking in on the procedure and commenting and, you know, annotating or directing? Are there tools for that? Absolutely. And there's, you know, a wealth of of videos and things that you can see on our website that walk you through those different features. But, you know, for us, it's the full package of having all of these together that makes us explore. So if I'm an expert physician and I'm proctoring a new physician learning that technology, the new physician is able to have the step-by-step best practices in the room for them and for their team to be able to see. If you think about the second piece of it, that's probably what I, the expert physician, am going to be able to do is to capture specific information around how the case went, leaving notes, you know, taking pictures and annotating them and so forth. Um, to store in a record for somebody to be able to see and access later to learn from. But then I'm also able to see everything that's going on in the room in real time. So I can see up to four different views of video in the room. I can annotate on those. I can share my screen and annotate on that. So there's a number of different ways that I can interact with that team, even though I'm not physically in the room with them. And so let's say the the surgeon that's actually in the operating room is in one of these cases, and it's a case where they're being uh, proctored, assisted, so on, uh, by a remote surgeon. And this surgeon could be a 1,000 miles away, right? Absolutely. I mean, they could be across the globe. Right. Okay, so they're being assisted. And let's say they run into uh, a question or a little bit of trouble. Something's not quite right, and maybe the the patient's anatomy that they didn't expect, and uh, they have to work around it. And so is this a place where the operating surgeon can talk to the proctoring surgeon and, and say, Look, this is this seems a little unusual to me, and I I'm not sure what I should uh, be doing, or what do you recommend in a case like this? So they can have this conversation while the surgery is taking place. Absolutely, they're having that conversation in real time. Um, the proctoring physician is able to see everything remotely, so you know that physician might pull up the live fluoroscopy and start marking it up, so demonstrating uh, specific things for the physician in the room to see. So you can share live annotations. I also might say, great, I want to pull up something else 
for you to see, but I have on my phone a picture of another case or another record. And I want to show this to you and walk you through this before you do this particular step on the patient that's on the table right now. So there's a ton of different ways to be able to interact, you know, just like you and I are doing on Zoom right now, where I'm sharing my screen and you're sharing your screen and we can see each other. You can do all of those things live during a procedure, but it's all done in a compliant manner. Excellent. And and one thing I want to uh, emphasize with the viewers, and I found this, I guess it shouldn't be considered unusual, but fascinating when you and I first talked, is the idea that there's a lot of products that we're involved with that have to go through some pretty significant clinical studies. And in a clinical study for a surgical product, uh, there are, you know, a, there's a very well-defined surgical protocol. And for a company, for a med tech company, it looks to me like this could be a terrific advantage in making sure that representative or application specialist that is either virtual or perhaps present the and the doctor and the staff are all following the clinical protocol um, accurately because it's right there in front of them. You know, they can't miss a step and make a mistake that could impact not only the outcome for the patient, but also the outcome for the clinical trial. Absolutely. So if you think about all the steps that a company takes when they're getting ready for a clinical trial case, you know, so often you have the team flying the night before. You're going through likely a PowerPoint of here's the step-by-step, you're having some videos, and then you're going to do the same thing the morning of. So, you know, we're able to replace all of that with one tool and having kind of that step-by-step playbook that you can actually talk through and use it the night before. You can use it the morning of as you're preparing. Then you can also use it live during the case. So you're able to reinforce all of that training and best practices. And then, you know, we, we all know that field clinical engineers that are in the room and, you know, they're big stacks of notebooks, right? So they're trying to frantically capture as much information as they possibly can about the case. There's specific data points that they want to have to be able to put into, you know, their EDC tool to be able to share as part of the procedure. But there's oftentimes, you know, five or 10 times more data points the company itself is interested in. And so we see that all the time. And the same field clinical engineers pulling out their phones, take a picture of something during the case and noting down at this time, I took this picture of this. And so now we can have all of this together stored in, you know, one comprehensive location. Yeah, it's really impressive. And you can record. Absolutely. So um, we don't record by default, just to be clear, um, but we can absolutely enable recording for our customers so long as the proper consenting has taken place. Right. And it seems to me that recording could be valuable in the case of a a clinical trial. Oh, Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially when volume is low and people are just learning how to do a procedure, there's all this knowledge that ends up getting dispersed, you know, geographically. So if each site has only done one or two procedures, you know, imagine how much learning there's been collectively by the 10th procedure. And you can now take all of that and share it with the physician that's about to do the 10th procedure. We're, we're really excited about this. And when you look back to that survey that I referred to before, and you think about what is going to um, happen post-pandemic, I'm hearing that there's going to be 
still a lot of pressure to have the virtual tools in place, even if somebody is attending the surgery, um, even if a, an application specialist or a sales representative is in the OR, um, there will be now a lot more interest in having the virtual tools in place just because of some of these advantages. Absolutely. So, so when we've explained this um, platform, I think pretty well, I'm trying to think if there's, I guess one question for you now that we've, that we've seen it is the name of the company is Explorer Surgical. And mm-hmm. it's, it's obvious that the, the path that you took was towards surgery. And you could also say other procedures because you could call an endoscopy room, a procedural room, right? As opposed to an OR, even though it's basically the same thing. What about other areas of the hospital? Do you see your technology going into other areas of the hospital as well? You know, it, it, it's funny, and we have uh, a number of folks that have spent a lot of time in the cardiology space on our board, and they give me a hard time all the time about the name Explorer Surgical yeah. and said, you need to change that. So at, at some point, you'll you'll see a press release from us, and you'll see a broader name, but for now, you know, I have other things on my plate to worry about. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think we see this as a really great tool that can be applied you know, within the four walls of any kind of invasive procedure. And so we see it as a great fit for the OR, for the cath lab, the EP lab, IR, GI, you know, you name it, right? So any kind of, you know, invasive and interventional procedure uh, that's being done on a patient, we think this is a great fit for. Um, For now, you know, other areas of the hospital, you know, inpatient rooms in the ICU are are for the most part, you know, outside of our scope, um, unless there's any type of, again, procedure that's being done in that setting. And I think one other advantage we should go back and review for everybody is that this gives a med tech company so much more flexibility in how they interact and support uh, surgical procedures, procedures, and anything else. And that you don't have to put somebody on an airplane to go proctor. And you're not subject to problems with travel, weather delays, or other types of cancellations. You could actually cover a lot more procedures. You save money because you're not paying for a proctor to be out of his practice or her practice for two or three days to proctor one person. Mm -hmm. They could actually proctor five people in that two or three day period. Yeah. So, and then also you can bring more people to bear in the procedure from around the company all at one time versus just having one person in the room. It, you know, it's it's funny. I think that in the last years really opened up a lot of eyes to this. So, you know, prior to COVID, what was being done, I think was impractical along a lot of spectrums, you know, flying half a dozen people around the world to go watch one procedure incurring tens of thousands of dollars of expense and many days of travel for, you know, a three hour case. And with COVID, we saw what was impractical then become impossible, which drove a lot of change. And now I think we see a lot of desire to maintain, you know, remote for a lot of these engagements. Um, for, you know, that, that reason. So you can actually, A, I think impact more patients and drive more change. If you say, we're going to take our 
best KOL position proctors. And like you said, they can proctor people in five locations across a day or two as opposed to having to fly. But also, I think there's just a a general work-life balance that people are looking for more. And, you know, at the end of the day, the physicians, the medical device sales reps, the clinical specialists, the good clinic chairs, we're, we're all people. And people like to be with their families. They like to, you know, put their kids to bed at night and, and have dinner with their spouse. And so, you know, by using a tool like this, you're actually enabling a better way of life for many of these people. Absolutely. Awesome. So let's move to the story behind the company, which I think is fascinating. And this will surprise people because Explorer Surgical was not the child of the pandemic. It was actually started a number of years ago. And let's talk about that. So I think you told me that this started around 2015. How did this happen? Yeah, so my co-founder, Alex Lingerman, who's a a head and neck surgeon, started a research lab about 10 years ago, actually in 2011, um, at the University of Chicago that was studying operating room workflow and operating room efficiency, or the lack thereof, uh, if you ask him. And I met Alex two years later in 2013, when I had gone back to graduate school. And at the time, I was working as a healthcare venture capitalist, um, investing in early stage healthcare companies. And I met Alex through a program at the University of Chicago, where in talking to him, he really opened my eyes to a lot of the challenges that he saw really around the variability of what happened in the surgical suite. And to be honest, when he described you know, some of the issues that he had where certain things weren't ready or he had brand new team members coming in that didn't know the specific steps of the case and how that would result in, you know, what we later measured to be about 5 to 10% of intraoperative time being spent in preventable delays, I didn't believe him. And I just said, Alex, there's there's no way that you have this many issues in, in surgery. Um, and that's when Alex invited me into the OR for the very first time eight years ago. And I started spending time with him and, and very quickly recognized, well, this is this is an incredible problem and it's, it's something that's so solvable. And so Alex and I began collaborating together to build a technology platform that he had had for a while in his head. Um, and he worked together to take the baby steps of creating early prototypes and um, getting some research funding in to help us validate that this wasn't just something at University of Chicago, but it was really a broader need um, across ORs and across surgeons and interventionalists around the country. And it was in 2015 that we officially incorporated as a company. We spun it out of University of Chicago. Um, and it was the year that we received uh, a rather large grant from the National Science Foundation to further our studies of this. In 2016, one year later, after completing uh, that research, I then left my day job um, as an investor to focus on building up the company full time. So at the end of 2016, we started raising outside money, uh, hiring a team, building a commercial product, and then later taking it to market. And when you were getting ready to take it to market and when you were doing all this planning, you thought, if I, if my notes are correct, that the market was going to be the hospital. We did. Yes. We did. So tell me a little bit about that. 
You know, our so all of our research had really centered, as I mentioned, on on operating room efficiency, and so we saw really a lot of low hanging fruit in the hospital in terms of value that we can create with a tool like ours. So, you know, we saw hundreds of dollars in disposables waste per procedure. So disposable items getting opened and never used. Um, a lot of instruments that are reusable are brought into the room. So a lot more trays and instruments that are, that are ever used. And then also just a lot of efficiencies in terms of time. So we saw a lot of a very large financial proposition to the head of surgical services in a hospital who's managing that PL, in addition to all of the clinical benefit that we thought could be there. So we originally went out and after we built kind of that commercial version, went into a number of hospitals to test this, to start capturing data and started marketing it. And to this day, every time we've worked um, directly with the hospital, we've been able to prove out that value proposition. But along the way, as I think a lot of healthcare IT companies find, um, we ended up identifying a better go-to-market by working directly with the medical device companies. So what we saw working with the hospitals was, you know, number one, a really long sales cycle, um, which is challenging as an early stage company. So, you know, we're not profitable yet. And so we rely on investment from outside investors to help us keep running the company. But in order to do that, you have to hit milestones every 12 to 18 months, which is very, very hard to do with the hospital sales cycle. What we also saw from the hospitals was, you know, hospitals expect, I think rightfully so, a very high level of support. And so when hospitals were purchasing the software from us directly, they wanted our team to be in the room with them every day, guiding the software, setting it up, working with the team. And what we recognized was that the greatest demand for our product was in very vendor-heavy specialties and procedures. And so often it would be the medical device rep or clinical specialist that would end up sitting with my team and saying, no, no, give, give me the phone, right? I, I've got it. I know all the steps. I'm working with the team. I've got it covered. And it led to one of the top three cardiology companies reaching out to us as a company. And we started engaging with them a couple of years ago. And that went so well that we looked around and said, you know, I think this is a better go-to-market and a way for us to really further the growth of our company, of our product. Um, and we have been doing that ever since. So I want to go back to uh, the hospital being the original target <clears throat> and the proposition that you could save um, procedure time, improve outcomes, save costs on disposables and reusables. And were you were you able to build a financial case around that that was yeah. uh, pretty obvious? Like what would what could a hospital save? How how can you give me an example of what savings might be? Yeah, the lowest hanging fruit is is absolutely just the disposables, mm -hmm. right? So especially as you're shifting toward value-based healthcare, hospitals are are getting a fixed reimbursement for more and more procedures. So any disposable items that could open and unused end up falling on the hospital. And what we see, it, it does vary across surgical specialties, but general surgery, I think we saw had the lowest amount in terms of dollar waste. And even that generally was several hundred dollars per case. Really? Um, wow. start, yeah, it, it's absolutely in, incredible. And I think it, it drives from the culture of the OR, where if you look at the team in the room, people want to be as prepared as possible. So if you ask, you know, the scrub, 
and say, why are you opening up everything? They're going to say, well, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person where the surgeon reaches out their hand and I don't have everything. And it reminds me so much of just how sometimes incentives are so misaligned in our, in our healthcare system in terms of expense. And so, you know, that scrub may have been yelled at before by somebody for not having something ready. And so there's this culture of open everything, have everything ready, you know, all of this. And there's been a shift of hospitals now, and you'll see the preference items and different hospitals have been putting forth different initiatives because there's a lot of opportunity there saying, you know, here's the items that you should have in the room, you know, that should be open. And here's the items that you need to have in the room. Please don't open them, but they should be available and they should be sitting over here on this table in case it's needed. So, you know, there's, there's a huge opportunity there and there's, you know, many other researchers that have published on this. There's, you know, a neurosurgery team at Cambridge Hospital, but they saw over a thousand dollars of waste of disposables per case. So it's really just, I think that's the most tremendous low hanging fruit that is there. Um, And I could go off for a long time about it, but I, I still believe there is so much value in a system like this you know, being used in hospitals and whether that comes directly from us or companies like us, or whether it comes from medical device company, you know, using a tool like this benefits all the parties that are involved and ultimately benefits the patient. And so when they're using your platform, there are, and they're following the steps and the instructions within the platform and preparing for the surgery and and then supporting it, there are those tools built into it that that help stop the um, the people preparing from the surgery from opening up the unnecessary things and and taking those steps that are expensive. Yeah, so we can you know at the very beginning of the case not just have a list but also have visuals of here's exactly you know what should be open and available and here are the things that you know you should have available, but don't open them up yet in terms of, you know, the single use peel packs and people are, people are visual learners, um, especially people that are in a clinical setting. We've seen this over and over again. And so if you give somebody, you know, a a preference card sheet and you've got four pages of, you know, six point font, right? Like we've all seen those those preference cards. Um, It's really hard to interpret and it's really hard to use. And there's a lot of issues with preference cards in general. But at the end of the day, the only thing a preference card does is help, if it's done correctly, is bring the right items into the room. But once they're in the room, there's nothing that's there to help the team. So if I'm walking in to a spine procedure and there are 13 trays and I'm a scrub that doesn't normally do spine, but I've now been rotated into this to cover for somebody, it's extraordinarily overwhelming for me to come in and see all this instrumentation and the you know, kind of gut is just, okay, I'm just going to open it, open up everything, open up everything, try to organize everything. So we want to support it, the entire team to make it easier and cohesive and, and have something that's really visual that's there to help them set everything up. Right. Okay. So then the first market was the hospitals. You started realizing the difficulty, the long sales cycle, sort of what you referred to in one of our previous conversations as the inertia in healthcare, uh, especially in the in the hospital side of healthcare, that's so difficult to overcome. And all of us in medtech have experienced that one time or another, especially if we've dealt with a new concept technology. So you 
then a cardiology company approached you and mm -hmm. you, and you, you started to understand the value that you had for med tech. So, um, actually, so it's sort of ironic in that if the med tech companies help move this forward by adopting these, yeah. this virtual platform, then the hospital is going to benefit by saving money on all these cases, totally. in addition to all the other things, good outcomes and so on. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, med device companies, um, it, it's a little different by specialty, but I think med device companies have, have broadly been looking for ways to add more service um, in the way that they, you know, deliver their products to customers. And it's always been high service um, in terms of, you know, very relationship driven. But, you know, there are certain medical device industries where the products, I think, are becoming more and more commoditized. And companies are thinking about how can I how can I deliver the most value to my customers? And a lot of them are looking for innovative service models of what else can I offer alongside my implant um, that is going to have a hospital want to work with me and where I can help them deliver great outcomes with our product. So that's been a, a trend that has been you know growing pretty heavily, I'd say, in the past you know five to ten years. Right. And then if we go back to the, the story of the company, again, start hospitals, start shifting toward uh, companies as a, as a prospective customer. But meanwhile, you're burning up cash and it's like 2018, 2019. What kind of pressures are on you as a CEO? You know, it's been several years now since you launched the company and you probably haven't gotten quite the traction you would have hoped to have gotten yet. What are the pressures as a CEO? Yeah, there there was absolutely pressure to to commercialize the product. And fortunately, we have a great set of investors behind us who are very experienced healthcare investors and you know are are patient because I've had a lot of people say, look, it takes 10 years to build a great healthcare company. Um, I think it's 15 years for for biotech. So for software, I don't know, maybe we're uh, maybe we're slightly lower than average. Um, but yeah, there's there's absolutely pressure, like I said, to meet those milestones. You know, we um, started kind of working on that commercial product in, in 2016 and, and spent some time in, in product development. But, you know, 2018 is is really when we sat and said we we want to start making the switch to focus more on med device companies after, you know, having that initial engagement. And ironically, 2018 was also the year that I had a lot of hospitals call me back with signed contracts. So oh. it, it's so funny the way things work out, you know, in 2016 and 2017, I think I, I personally met with, I want to say 75 or 80 different surgical services directors around the country. I mean, I was on a plane all the time um, going, I was our, our salesperson, I met with everybody, wanted to hear, you know, people were looking for. And, you know, there were certain hangups that I won't bore everybody with the details of it, but, you know, we sometimes find really great teams that wanted to use the system, that wanted to buy it, but couldn't quite get it through the purchasing process. It was really ironic that as a team, right when we said, okay, let's focus on getting more medical device customers, that all of a sudden I had these hospital contracts in hand. And so there was a period of time where we were doing both. And, you know, it, I think that experience helped us really validate that, 
you know, our better go-to-market at the time was working exclusively with medical device companies. And it wasn't until a couple of months ago that we actually rolled off of our very last existing commercial hospital agreement. So we still do work with hospitals today, and there's so much value for us in having those direct relationships. Um, but, you know, for now, we, we don't see it as our go-to-market. Right. And as you started moving into med tech, and I'm, let's still stay pre-COVID, uh, medical device companies as, as potential customers, did you find that there was a kind of inertia there? For example, the same thing that CRM ran into as, as companies tried to adopt um, CRM programs, the sales team was like, oh, you got to be kidding you want me to do this? You want me to fill out all this stuff on the computer and give you all this information? This yeah. is my information. You know, I'm the owner of my territory, right. the whole lone wolf type of thing. I don't need help from somebody else. Right. I'll take care of it. Did you run into that? Uh, yes. And and I think we, we still do um, uh -huh. in some ways. You know, I, I do think the med tech model is evolving, evolving very rapidly right now. Um, and, you know, I think that what's happened in the past 12 months is, has really been a catalyst for change in the best possible way, thinking about this. So, you know, what we end up working a lot of our customers on and working with the reps and clinical specialists that are on the ground is, you know, digital is the future. And, you know, just like, you know, you and I are doing this over Zoom right now, I had to learn how to, I mean, I was using Zoom before this, but any person in business right now has to learn how to use video conferencing and how to use it effectively as part of how to deliver their job. Digital is the future for med tech. And so I think the resistance won't last very long. And people are learning that, you know, we need to embrace digital tools because this is how things are going to get done. And so you know, we encourage everybody to really think about using digital tools as part of their toolkit to be a great seller and to, you know, provide great clinical support to uh, teams that are using their product. And if you look at you look at the survey results that you shared earlier, you may not be able to do your job very well um, if if you don't start to incorporate digital tools in. So there's always going to be people that resist it. But, you know, I think the, the market has now spoken and has said, you know, this is, this is going to be our norm. It's interesting. Back at the uh, beginning of the pandemic, I was talking to some of my executive colleagues about their challenges and trying to get their sales teams to start working virtually with customers and with prospects. And a couple of them told me that when I asked, when I asked them, can everybody adapt to this? And uh, one of them said, Ted, I think 30 or 40% of my team, and, and these are traditionally good sales reps, but they're not going to be able to do this. So it's almost like there could be a different profile of a person that will succeed in this new environment. And you know, if, if you're not that profile, either you're going to have to get out or you're going to have to change because this is the future. I agree with you. Yeah. It, whether people like it or not, um, and I hope more people like it than don't, it it's a part of how business is, is going to be done. Right. 
And I think the other thing that will happen um, as we come out of the pandemic and more hospitals say that somebody can be in the OR, they're still going to want to have the virtual component there in support of it because there's just so many advantages to the platform. And so the rep will be there, but the circulating nurses and the scrub nurses and the doctors are going to expect the virtual support. Well, 100%. And, you know, I think for us, that's where, you know, when we think about case support and using a platform like ours, we still have plenty of customers today that use our platform in person, and that's the only way they're using it. So all of those, you know, issues around, does the team know how to set up the case? And if you're doing a clinical trials case and the team, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience with this product because it's so early, how do you instill the best practices and how do you capture data? All of that applies whether you are in the room, whether everybody is remote, or whether it's some kind of hybrid. I think you're right. You're going to see a lot more of you know what we call the hybrid model in the future, where you know local reps are are still going to be in the room. Um, in in no way do I envision you know there's no longer any in-person presence from the med device companies, and the reps and clinical specialists have a huge role in many of these procedures and. Oftentimes, they're, they're hands-on programming, right? If you look at, you know, CRM. So there are some advances for, you know, remote programming and Medtronic and, and among other companies has, has spoken about that. But, you know, I think it goes back to, you know, right now, travel is for many people impossible. But pre and post-COVID, it's still impractical. And so if you think about all the people from a company that could benefit from watching the procedure or providing guidance... You can't even put all those people physically in a room, right? The rooms aren't that right. big to support a case. So imagine the value of being able to take your, you know, best KOL physicians and have, you know, dozens of physicians observe him or her doing the procedure, having your new clean, uh, training classes of reps and clinical specialists watching and learning and asking questions about the case and taking notes. There's there's so much that you can do Um by using a tool like this. And I think you're really democratizing access to, you know, not only HCPs, but to industry professionals as well. Exactly. And let's go back to the story because now we're moving into uh, 2020 and um, you've got still a relatively small team uh, supporting you. And as you just said a minute ago, you're sort of the chief salesperson in addition to being the CEO. It's it's typical of being in a small company. You wear lots of hats. Jim has been with us now for almost a year. He's fantastic to work with. So I, yeah. I, you know, I, but so my roles have changed, but I, I do love still being involved in our commercial process. Sure, sure. But you start into 2020 and when did you get the first indication that, holy cow, this is going to really boom. I mean, there's a lot going mm -hmm. on. When did you start getting your first calls? I'd say February was when we started to get the inklings of um, how bad COVID was going to be because we uh, we had a, a customer we were working with that was doing international collaboration Um and there were a number of Japanese physicians that were planning on coming to Minneapolis for this particular event. And that got canceled um, as we started to see COVID really rise in Asia. And then 
So we started getting inklings of some of it. And I'd say right before the middle of March, and we started to see these big shutdowns, I was getting calls, my team was getting calls from some of our orthopedic customers at first, when we were working with those, those sales reps who started calling and saying, I'm getting let into the hospital and I can get into the room and I can deliver my stuff. They're not letting me stay in there. They're not letting me use PPE. And so we got a lot of inklings of this, I'd say, kind of in that month leading up um, to the large shutdowns. But even then, nobody could have predicted how widespread and how terrible of a tragedy this pandemic was going to be. And quite honestly, with the freeze of elective procedures, our company took a huge hit initially. So everybody that was working with us that did a lot of work with us for in-person events, which was the vast majority of our, our business, all of that business was was canceled or postponed. Everything in our pipeline was frozen. It, it was a really scary time for us. Um, but I think, you know, in April and May, we started to really see business pick back up um, as electric procedures started happening again. And then I think it was Q3 where it really sunk in that, you know, this is this is not just a an eight-week thing, but this is really something that is going to fundamentally change, you know, the industry, of course, but just really life in general um, in a permanent way. Right. So you for uh, um, listeners, if you can't see this, I'll just tell you that Jennifer has a beautiful head of hair. So she didn't pull all her hair out last year, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you must have felt like it at some time because you must have thought, I have got the solution here for a lot of these problems. And some people know it, but not enough people do. <laughs> yeah, you know, it... Um... Yes, uh, some of it, but you know, it's also it, 2020 was a really unpredictable year, and and so many twists and turns, you know, um, for kind of everybody in the healthcare space. So, you know, I I think that, like I said, the first couple of months, we we really weren't sure what it was going to mean, but we're really excited about what's happening in 2021. You know, it's it's so unfortunate that. It took, you know, a, a global tragedy to start to really see this happen. But, you know, one of my business school professors used to always say, nothing ever changes until something bad happens. <laughs> and he's right. And I think this is this is the light at the end of the tunnel for us. And the silver lining in this awful situation is that, you know, the healthcare industry has embraced digital they have embraced remote and virtual. And so this applies in the OR, in the cath lab, but also broadly throughout our entire healthcare ecosystem. And there are so many benefits to this across the board in terms of you know, efficiencies in care, improved access to care. Um, I think there's really going to be just a, a renaissance of innovation in healthcare that is going to emerge in the next couple of years. And we're so excited. Yeah, you think about the other areas that you're alluding to here, but just think about telemedicine or telehealth, whatever you want to call it, remote patient monitoring, and just think about the benefits to healthcare that all this is going to bring. But one thing I'd like to go back to is, um, 
you know, you, you hit Q3, you're getting super traction. I'm not going to mention the number you mentioned in one of our previous discussions, but you had an, you know, a multiple X times growth. You said it was yeah. like having, you know, X number of years of business development and two quarters, Yeah, uh, which is, and you were again, still very involved in all the selling, but you did have, you did bring on, um, Jim Surrey and yeah. the, the, you know, started a sales team. You were able to expand other parts of your team. And now I'm just uh, excited for you that you're on really solid footing and with something that, and it's so deservedly. So, I mean, everybody's a winner in this, the, the patient's the winner, the, yeah. the doctor, the nurses, the, the the med tech company and then the hospital the med tech company is paying for this but the hospital saves money and has a good outcome you know it's uh it's just it's just really terrific yeah it, i mean that's what we're going for right is you know delivering value to all of the stakeholders um but ultimately the most important at the end of the day is the patient that's on the table and that's been our guiding motto in everything that we do is you know, build the products and deliver the service, you know, as, as if it were, you know, your loved one that was on the table, what would you want to happen um, while they were on the table and in the room? Exactly. And as a, as a uh, CEO, this is a great story, I think, because it's from the back of the napkin to commercialization. You don't see a lot of CEOs that are founders of a company actually make it to commercialization because either they're too technologically oriented or they have some other weakness. And if they don't know it, the board knows that a change has to take place. So I, I just think it's great that you took it from the napkin to commercialization. It's a great story. What advice do you have for other CEOs in your particular situation that are, you know, they started with that, you know, back of the napkin business design and they're on the cusp of commercialization. What advice do you have? You know, I, I'd say have patience as much as you possibly can. I'm absolutely not a patient person, but I am glad that we continued persisting even through some of, you know, I'd say that the darker times where, you know, we were worried about, you know, would the market accept this and were we too early? So I'd say absolutely have patience. Um, I would say take advantage of as much non-dilutive capital raising as you can through grants. That's, I think the best thing about being in the healthcare space is there's access to so much research funding that you can get to help bring your products to market. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, keep doing customer discovery every single day. So if, if the last year taught us anything, um, is that the market evolves really quickly. So what may be happening one day may be totally different the next day, the next week, the next month. And at the end of the day, if you're delivering a product that creates a value for your customers, you know, everything is going, every, everything I, I do think will turn out and so, but you have to keep listening to your customers and what they need and what works for them to make sure that you're still offering value. Right. Do you have any business heroes? Business heroes. Yeah, I should have um, prepped you. I should have prepped you for that one. I'm sorry I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you should. You you should have. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm trying. You know, to think off the top of my head. I I, I have a number um, of people that you know I really look to you know, as mentors and, and as advisors, 
I'm not sure, you know, there's any one um, in particular that I would pick. Um, so let me come back to you on that one and we can okay. always add it to the segment later. Sure. And then the other thing I was I wanted to ask you, and I should have prepped you on this, is is, is there a particular book or a couple books that you if if somebody's asking you, hey Jennifer, what should I read about being in the C-suite or about being in a startup or or whatever? Are there any books that you yeah. seem to always recommend? So for startups, you know, the hard thing about hard things um, is is a favorite of mine. The hard uh, thing about hard things. Yeah, I hope I got that title correct. Well, um, I will look it up and it'll be in the show notes for people to to refer to. So I'd not heard of that one. Okay, the hard thing about hard things and any yeah, other? Yeah, it's all about the really early days of, of building a company um, and a lot of the lessons that were learned. So that's that's probably so that's probably my favorite, most enjoyable, uh, you know, business book that I recommend about early stage companies. And then um, there is another book that is um, I don't offend the author. I wouldn't say it is as easy of a read, but it is extraordinarily useful, which is called Venture Deals by Brad Feld. Um, and it's you know how to be smarter than your uh, venture capitalist lawyer. And it just does a really nice job of explaining the different terms um, that you see in venture capital financings. And I think it's extraordinarily useful um, and an ongoing reference for any entrepreneur that wants to raise outside capital um, to have as a book that's on their bookshelf. And what made you entrepreneurial? What do you think, you know, gave you the entrepreneur's gene, so to speak? Um. And it's funny, I don't know if I have, you know, you say that at first and I say, actually, I don't know if I have the genes. Then I look at, you know, my mom um, who runs her own business and her parents who, uh, you know, both immigrated here after the Holocaust and both ran their own businesses. So maybe there is actually something that's in my DNA. I'll have to get it sequenced and let you know. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't something that I thought I was going to do. Um, it, you know, wasn't my plan coming out of college. It wasn't my plan going into or out of business school. So I feel like this opportunity really chose me in in many ways. And um, I'm so glad that I'm doing it. And it's been absolutely incredible to think about, you know, eight years ago, having never been in an operating room and meeting Alex for the first time and sitting in this little office um, that you know we we had um, as a miniature lab in, in the new hospital University of Chicago to where we are today now being you know a global company with over 30 team members it's it's been really incredible and I'm so thankful for the journey and everything that we've done so far and just couldn't be more excited about what's to come. Well you've accomplished an, a lot. It's a really impressive story and, I, and I'm impressed that somebody that was not used to the med tech industry, and especially being as intimately as involved as being in the operating room, which I spent many years in the operating room supporting doctors. But for you to go in and to be able to have the open mind to understand what your co-founder was trying to explain to you and, and see what was going on and see the deficiencies there and what the solution could be is really impressive. So uh, a hearty congratulations. I don't know that that's anything that's that special to me. I think it's at the end of the day, 
Um, it's a team working together, just like they would in any other industry and in any other setting, um, with, with arguably much higher stakes, um, taking care of a patient. But, you know, that's been our goal the whole time is how do we enable a team of people to work together as best as they possibly can to provide a great outcome for that patient? And so in this case, that team of people is, you know, the, the physician, the scrub, the circulator, the anesthesia team, you know, and the medical device company and their team members who are an integral part of that team and success. And it's how do you have a tool that really enables them to work together to provide the information they need to provide, to capture the data that they need and to allow them to communicate with each other. So, you know, it's, they're the same problems um, that you see in, in every other setting but for us, solving this problem provides, you know, so much value on so many different dimensions, which is what makes it so fulfilling. Well, that's great. And, and one thing I'd like to say is that I hope that, you know, in a year, we might be able to circle back with you for a short interview and, and see where you are, because sure. I think there's, think there's going to be some really, really big changes. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for for spending the time with uh, with me and the listeners and the viewers today. Uh, this has been a just a terrific interview. A lot of great things to share, and I really wish you and your team uh, the best as you move forward. Thank you so much. Everybody wins. Most important, the patient, because the Explorer platforms help assure that best practices are followed for the procedure. The hospital wins because they have reduced OR time and costs. The medical device company wins because they are providing excellent support for the procedure at hand. The sales rep wins because by directing the implementation of this technology, they look like the ultimate professional. Jennifer is leading a winning team and a winning platform. I can't wait to see where they are in a year. And do you remember the conversation we had with Stephanie Maris a couple episodes ago? She was leading the entrepreneurship program at the University of California, San Francisco. She said that successful entrepreneurs typically have to pivot somewhere in the early years of commercialization as they listen to the market. Explorer Surgical did just that. Check the show notes for important links. And if you like this podcast, please rate it, recommend it to a friend, and or subscribe. Now go win your week.